Now, normally, um, Christian movies are not that well done. They have bad acting. Sometimes they have uh, even worse uh, plots. But The Chosen, from what I've seen in a few of the episodes, is better than the majority. And I want you to watch in this video clip. It's going to tell the story that's found in John chapter 5, verses 1 and following. But as any movie, it also takes some liberty. Uh, obviously, when you create dialogue for a movie, you can't just necessarily go verbatim out of the scripture. But they've done a very good job of bringing in some things that go along with this chorus. So Jesus is going to choose a man, a particular individual, that he is going to heal out of a greater multitude that is also present on the occasion. And he's an individual that's doing it for a very specific reason that we'll see in a moment. But I want you to keep your eyes tuned to this line here. I know I'm chosen. God, you are restoring all things for your glory. Keep that in your mind as you watch this video clip. Let's watch together. This is what all the fuss is about. An oversized mikveh. I have a feeling we haven't seen it all yet. That's him. Who? Him. The one who's been here the longest. What doesn't belong. The sad one. Why do I get the feeling this isn't just a meeting? Do we need to be on the lookout? No. Just stay with me and watch. Shalom. Me? Yes. Shalom. I have a question for you. For me. I don't have many answers, but I'm listening. Do you want to be healed? Who are you? We'll get to that later. But my question remains. Will you take me to the water? <laughs> Look, I'm having a really bad day. You've been having a bad day for a long time. So? 
Sir, I have no one to help me into the water when it's stirred up. And when I do get close, the others step down in front of me. And so... Look at me. Look at me. That's not what I asked. I'm not asking you about who's helping you, or who's not helping, or who's getting in your way. I'm asking about you. <laughs> I've tried. For a long time, I know. And you don't want false hope again, I understand. But this pool, it has nothing for you. It means nothing. And you know it. But you're still here. Why? I don't know. You don't need this pool. You only need me. So, do you want to be healed? So let's go. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. to walk, like he said. Don't forget your bed. Why does this matter? Because you're not coming back here. That life is over. Everything changes now. Yo! It's Shabbat. What are you doing? Torah forbids carrying a mat on Shabbat? Not Torah, the oral tradition. Yes. Transporting objects from one domain to another violates Shabbat. The man who healed me. Do you me. not realize what just happened here? Why are you trying to make this about Shabbat? He said to me, take up your bed and walk. Who did? Who told you that? He did. I don't know. He didn't tell me his name. No. Of course not. He performs a magic trick and tells you to commit a sin. A false prophet. This will be reported. <laughs> Report whatever you want. I'm standing on two legs. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I need to go find my brother.
sorry. It's my first time. I'm headed to the upper city. Great. <laughs> Thank you for letting me see that. Thank you for being with me. Well, the Pharisees were pretty upset. That was almost as much fun to watch as the miracle. This week should be fun, huh? I do have a question, Rabbi. Yes, Matthew?
Waiting 30 more minutes wouldn't have mattered to that man. Why did you do this on Shabbat? Sometimes you gotta stir up the water. That's what Jesus often did, especially to religious people. He stirred up the water. That particular video was a summarization with a little bit of ad lib to it of John chapter 5. And John chapter 5 tells a story of this paralytic who is healed by Jesus. But it does more than that. It tells us about the conflict that Jesus created with some of the religion of his day. So today we want to continue this study into the mystic, and we're talking about some of the symbolism in the Gospel of John. And when you look at the text in John chapter 5, you're going to see a lot of symbols in this particular passage. In fact, you might say this particular passage is almost like a parable that is written to teach us something about where we find life. Because in this little theme that I'm developing, that we are all on a journey, and as on this journey, we take a voyage to try to find the type of life that Jesus came to bring to us. So over the last couple of weeks, we talked a little bit about mysticism, and we said that mysticism is some of those mysterious moments in life, and it can be events, encounters, it can be experiences, it can be individuals, it can be a lot of different things that we encounter at a particular time that then creates memories, meaning, and a movement that often will transcend time. These are the things that you remember well into your older years. As you look back over the course of your life, you'll forget probably most of the things that have happened on the calendar, but there are certain things that stand out because they're are moments that are holy. There are moments that are special. There are moments that somehow grab our soul and give to us meaning and purpose. And so when we step into the mystic, what we're doing is we are experiencing something, something that's going to lift us up, something that is going to get us beyond where we are today with a hope for tomorrow. So in this story that we've been telling in the Gospel of John, we have been looking at a few different things that constitute miracles in the ministry of Jesus, but we are looking beyond that, and what we are seeing is that these are mystical moments that create such memories in the minds of the disciples that when John sits down to write his Gospel, he doesn't choose to say everything. He very selectively chooses things that he calls signs that are pointing us to Jesus. And we've already looked at two of them, changing the water to wine, the healing of the royal official's son, and now we're going to see the healing of the man who is lying beside the pool at Bethesda. Uh, and that uh, word, Bethesda, means house of mercy. We're going to come to that more in a moment. However, what we find is this man 
had been paralyzed for a total of 38 years. And so today, as we look at this particular story, we're going to see it's part of the link to the previous stories. So you have the changing of the water to wine, the promise of the better banquet that is yet to come. We see that it creates a tension in the uh, souls of the religious leaders, especially the way that John hooks up the changing of the water of wine to him stepping into the temple and overturning the tables of the merchants. Well, that's tension number one. Then he has this conversation with Nicodemus, who is a religious fundamentalist. He's a wooden literalist. He's part of the Pharisees that try to uh, honor God by strict keeping of the law and the oral traditions that go along with that. Then he meets a woman in Sychar up in the area of Samaria, and she is a Samaritan. She's half Jewish. She is half Gentile. That's forbidden to those that are trying to keep the pure religion. And the disciples are surprised as he talks with this woman. And what we find is that the disciples begin whispering to one another, that's taboo, tension number two. Then we saw last week the healing of the Gentile official. This one who was in the military who comes to Jesus and asks for the healing of his son And Jesus almost seems as though as he brushes him off and says, go, your son will live. And this official probably walked back, hanging his head, thinking that Jesus had brushed him off. And finally, he comes close to his home, and those who are the servants come running out to him and say, your son is taking a turn for the better. He lives. And then we see after that Gentile healing, this story that is connected to it. This individual that's lying beside a very important place in the mind of the Jewish people, it's in the temple precinct, it's in the area where you worship God and you keep the law and you keep all of the religion just as the Pharisees prescribe it. This man had given up hope. He had been paralyzed for 38 years And yet, Jesus will heal him, and that will create tension number three. Why does Jesus heal this man on the Sabbath? You're not allowed to do that type of thing on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to travel a certain distance on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry things on the Sabbath. And as you saw in the video, the disciples said, why couldn't you have just waited 30 more minutes after sunset? (laughs) Sabbath is over. You could have healed him then. Well, Jesus says sometimes you got to stir the waters. So today I want us to look at this story, and here's how I want to develop it. I want to talk about the story for a moment, the Sabbath day for a moment, the symbolism of the 38 years, and then the significance of it. So life has a way of paralyzing us and beating us into submission, don't you think? At times, The things that we experience in life just seem to twist and turn us. And sometimes it's just not easy to get through life without some kind of emotional emotional paralysis like depression, anxiety, anger, the ongoing effects of those type of things. When we look at this man that's lying beside the pool of Bethesda, there is more that's going on in the story than his simple physical ailment that prevents him from walking.
There's all the emotional elements of it too. Can you imagine? Here is an individual that has been lying here for decades. He's lost all hope. He has a sense of helplessness. And I think that is true on a physical level, but it's also true on an emotional level too. So here in this place, we're going to see the gathering of people who are sick. They are carrying both physical, emotional, and psychological elements with them. And here we find Jesus stepping into the temple area, and he enters through the sheep gate, we're told. So in the temple area, there are certain gates that you could enter into the temple area. But Jesus very intentionally goes through the sheep gate. Why? John in his symbolism is starting to tell us something. What normally comes through that gate? The sheep that are going to be brought for sacrifice. All right? So in ancient religion, what we find is there's often the belief that you have to appease God by somehow offering some type of sacrifice, usually of an animal. But in some pagan religions, sometimes that meant humans too. Sometimes that meant a firstborn. And so what we find is that religion has a way sometimes of paralyzing us into its rules and into its conformities. And what we find here is Jesus intentionally enters through the sheep gate, that very place where in Judaism, these animals would be brought to be sacrificed to God. Keep that in the back of your mind. Once inside the sheep gate there, there's this pool. And it is called the Pool of Bethesda. Have any of you ever been to Bethesda, Maryland? That's named after this. The term bet, it means house. And what we find is that in Hebrew... Bethesda means house of mercy. And there inside this temple area was this pool. And, and scholars sometimes debate about what this pool was for. Uh, it seemed to have been a natural mineral type of pool. And what we find is that possibly some scholars suggest this is where sometimes when the animals were brought in, they would be washed. But more than likely... This was to be for the people that were coming, for the religious establishment, before they would then offer up these animals for sacrifice, that they would do what is called mikvah. In Jewish um, theology, mikvah is a ceremonial washing to try to cleanse yourself so that you can make yourself worthy before God, right? And so this pool might have been used in that capacity for ceremonial washing so that these offerings can be given to God so that God's wrath can be appeased in some manner. What we find in the story is alongside that pool is a man. And he's been laying there for 38 years. He doesn't have a name. The only thing that we know is that there was a superstition that was believed, because these were natural mineral waters that was in this pool, that occasionally the water stirred. And there was the belief that when these waters stirred, it was actually an angel that was coming and stirring the waters, and the first person into the pool 
after the waters are stirred, would be healed. Okay? So, there are these things that happen sometimes in the course of life where whether they are true or not, that's what we believe, right? And so these people believed, ah, oh, if I get into the pool, if I'm the first one in after the water stir, I can get healed. I can receive a miracle. But here's this invalid. He's been lying on this mat year after year after year after year, and he can't get into the pool. He's paralyzed. No one will get him up and to the edge of the pool to get ready for the waters to stir that could happen at any mysterious moment. Nobody would help him into the pool. And so there he lays. And it seems as though he's going to be in that situation forever. But Jesus calls him beyond his paralysis. The man is stuck in physical pain, obviously, but also in a social paralysis as well. But here, Jesus is going to cure this man on a holy day. The Sabbath, Shabbat, is the day of rest. You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to travel. You're not allowed to do anything but wait for the next day. And the Pharisees who are present in this temple area observe what is going on at this house of mercy, but they don't have any mercy. Do you get the, the contrast there? They don't have any mercy. All they're concerned about is the letter of the law. And so what we find is that here's this place that supposedly was associated with healing, but there is no compassion. There's no love. What we find is in these mineral baths, people might have received some help from skin diseases and the like, but oh, an individual that could actually be healed in a way he could walk again. And so we find here's this man that is laying there, waiting and waiting and waiting. And Jesus comes along and says, pick up your bed. Pick up your mat and walk. And you saw the dramatization in the video. And it's very poignant there. I love the way that particular video put, put it. It's, he's, I know, I know the way you feel. I know that you've been disappointed time and time and time again. I know you're paralyzed in more than one way. But get up and walk. And here's this man who has been laying for 38 years. The Sabbath day is a holy day, but it was always assumed to be some type of legalistic thing that needed to be done, rather than it being a celebration of God's creative activity. You know, in the Genesis account of creation in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, God works on six days, and then on the seventh day, he rests. And the Sabbath day was to be a great celebration of this God of great creative love that provided this world that we call our home and that we enjoy. And so it's significant that Jesus is going to choose Shabbat as the day to set this man free in love. And what we find is that 
he heals him on this day in which he shouldn't because he's connecting this miracle back to the created order in the Genesis account. This is the God that we are serving. This is the God who is full of creative love. This is the God that is providing for people. And so, in the freedom of love, we find this man who had been laying there for 38 years is set free. Now, why 38 years? Seems to be an interesting number. 38 years is connecting us back to the time the nation of Israel came out of Egypt. And they came to the edge of the promised land, a land that was said to be flowing with milk and honey. But they couldn't believe, and they were afraid, and they turned around, and they went back, and they accused Moses of bringing them out to die in the desert. Why couldn't they be back in Egypt where there were onions and leeks and garlic and everything that they would miss? God says to Moses, he says, this generation is not going to enter into the promised land. The next generation will be the one that actually enjoys the promise of the covenant. And so they wander in the wilderness. For how long? Almost 40 years. Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14 actually says they were in the wilderness for 38 years. That experience in the wilderness, they too were stuck in this dry, arid place. God was providing for them manna and water, but for the most part, they could never settle down. They could never move forward. They could never have a fullness of life, right? They were stuck in the desert. And all of this imagery is brought into this one person, this man who's been laying there for all these years, and he is the embodiment of the nation of Israel. He is the embodiment of what God wanted to do with his people to give to them a life that is flowing with milk and honey and fruitfulness. This man represents their fears. This man represents their paralysis. This man represents the religious institution of Jesus' day. And so what we find is Jesus will heal this man and allow him to get up and walk. Now, what it's doing is setting up a contrast. Isn't it amazing how religion is more confining and controlling than it is liberating? Many times those who are at the head of religion, like the Pharisees, wants to make sure everyone toes the line, right? Everyone obeys. But God is showing us through Christ that he does not need the approval of anyone. And there are many times that God works outside the box. And that might make us uncomfortable at times, that God does what he wants, when he wants, and where he wants. And in this story, we see that the religious leaders, instead of embracing God being at work, 
they charge Jesus with blasphemy. The text goes on and says this. The video did not uh, portray this part, but I want you to listen. There's a dialogue that goes on after this man has been healed. And so in verse 16 of John chapter 5, it says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making him equal with God. Two charges. He broke the Sabbath, and he's claiming equality with God. He deserves death. He deserves to be put down. And then Jesus says this. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, and whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has, been cross, has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So here you see there's more to the story than just the healing. It has to do with the type of life Jesus came to introduce, the type of God that Jesus came to introduce to us. The religious leaders were on the adventure of missing the point so often and they were misleading the people down the same path but what we begin to see is that in the community that John is writing to they are beginning to split away from the synagogue worship they're beginning to split away from the Pharisees and they're beginning to understand that God is in the business of doing great works for all of us this disabled man who had found wholeness symbolizes what human beings often struggle with. The inability to live into wholeness drifts back into the symbols of our broken and crippled past. And sometimes it's a costly decision to choose life, but that is what followers of Jesus are offered. Choose life, grasp life, enter life, claim life, but it will require a new vision. It will require being born of the Spirit to be able to see that God is doing far beyond what religion claims that God can only do. And so what we find as we move into the mystic is this, that sometimes we got to stir the waters. Sometimes we have to understand that that still water that was laying in that pool only did one thing, provide reflection back as people looked into it. But when those waters stirred, when those waters stirred, there was this 
hope that emerged that God can do something bigger and more and greater than what we could ever imagine. And that's the God we serve, brothers and sisters. This God who is not confined by any religion. This God who is not controlled by those who are in authority of those religions. So on Wednesday nights, we've been doing this study about the history of the church and been talking about some of the turning points of the church in terms of where it once was the means of offering life to each other, all of a sudden began to turn into this institution of power, this institution of control, this institution that would eventually require certain people to break away. So in the third century AD, there were a group of men and women that decided, we're going to do what John the Baptist did, break away. And they went into the desert, and they are called in early church writings the desert fathers and the desert mothers. And what they did is they broke away intentionally to experience the desert away from the religion so that they could meet God again. And so what we find is that these group of individuals are often like us that need to think a new way to expand our horizon, to understand that God is not confined simply to the past, that God is alive, that God is moving, and that God is offering us freedom. No matter where we have been in bondage, God is freeing us. God is though our, uh, God gives to those who are often lifeless and paralyzed new hope. So today, being the first Sunday of February, this is the beginning of Black History Month. So what I thought I would do is uh, give to you a quote before we take communion. This comes from a writer. His name is Dante Stewart. He's a speaker and a writer. Some of his, uh, his works have been on CNN and the Washington Post. But he put out a book called Shoutin' in the Fire, an American Epistle. And what he is talking about in that book is that religion sometimes has a way, like we talked last week, of getting in its own way. And here's what he says in this book. He says, the problem with religion and spirituality today is that so many use faith as a way to control others, that we bring God into fights not of God's own choosing, that we are so loud on what God is so silent about, and that religion and spirituality become a way to evade liberation and justice. That's the real problem. It is that people use God to protect the status quo and not follow God into changing the world. You know, rather than simply having a religious belief, John is telling us that we can experience God and these moments come sometimes very, uh, very unusually and very mysteriously. But what you find in the ministry of Jesus is compassion. The compassion of Jesus is central. And it's reflected in the words that he says to this man, Do you want to get well? Do you want to walk? And I think that's what Jesus is continuing to ask us. And so today, being the first Sunday of the month, we 
celebrate communion together. You know, it's often hard to convince people that God, the God that they cannot see loves them when religion that they can see doesn't seem to even like them. But Jesus did not come to change God's mind about us, but to change our mind about God. And this is what love looks like. The Creator submitting to His creation, suffering and agonizing and humiliating death to embody the eternal love of God's grace to us all. As we stand together, let's close in prayer together. In many ways, Heavenly Father, we're like that paralytic. We've been bound and constrained and held down, sometimes by circumstances beyond our control. Sometimes we're at the mercy of the actions of other people. But you are continually moving, and the symbolism of this miracle is that you stir the waters. And when you do, you give us the strength to step into those waters for a new tomorrow. And so whatever burden we're carrying, whatever mat we're carrying, help us to understand that you're the one that has given us the strength to take the next step. Put your blessing upon my brothers and sisters here. Lift them up and help them to walk into the future with confidence, knowing that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Knowing that you are working sometimes behind the scenes and outside the box of religion. Help us to connect through your spirit the vitality of life that you've come to display in the person of Jesus. Put your blessing upon this day and into the week ahead and give to us confidence, give to us hope, and give to us assurance because of your grace. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great weekend, everyone.